Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., fact. Okay. There is no gender pay gap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why do you start out these sometimes making it my stomach? It is a myth. People will think that... <laughs> that I believe that? Well, yes. But second off, they also think that like... like that it, you believe it? Because you do. No, I do, I'm going to hurt you in a second. But here's the thing is, is that you when you do this, it's not like you like warn me. Is that you start saying these things and I start getting sick to my stomach before we even like, get into We're just things. half the fun. Is it though? Is it? <laughs> hey, listen. Today's guests say it's not as bad as you think. Uh huh. So she would say that we are within 98% between men and women. Really? And she explains why. Okay. However, you would think that she's just pushing back on feminism. She says there's not a problem. Yeah. She would say, no, 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 no. There is an enormous problem. Women are not given the same opportunities to move into those positions because we are ah. choosing male-dominant characteristics over female-dominant characteristics, and we're accelerating those people because we see them as leaders. In other words, we're accelerating arrogance. Uh We're accelerating (laughs) a false sense of confidence. Aggression. Aggression. (laughs) uh, Self-grandizing. And that is what's being elevated as that's what it means to be a leader. What a fascinating conversation. I haven't heard it yet, so I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) And we don't even get into like gender nuance. We don't get into race. We don't get yeah. into the Me Too movement. We could have gone on and oh, on I'm sure. and on. Yeah. But if you are like me running a company, you have likely spent some mental bandwidth thinking about the fact that you might not be paying women as much as you're paying men. Mm-hmm. Our number one employee by payment last year, I believe, was a woman. Yep. If not, it was neck and yep. neck. It was. You won't believe how comfortable that made me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I do. We had conversations around it. <laughs> they made more than me. <laughs> she made more than me, so I know. This is partly my plan to stay married. Yep. Because Betsy would kill me if I didn't if I showed any sort of favoritism. But it's an issue we've all got to talk about, we've all yeah. got to deal with. Marissa Orr is our guest today. She wrote a book called Lean Out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As a response to Sheryl Sandberg's Very Lean In. Yeah. I really liked talking to yeah. her. I really did. I think she has some fascinating insights. And listen, you can't just let one voice dominate and frame the conversation. Yeah. You have to have a plethora of voices. I think one of the challenges with somebody like Marissa, and I would say the challenges with the truth. With the whole conversation. Is you have to stop and nuance it. Because yeah. this is a nuanced conversation. This yeah. is not a black and white, good guy, bad guy idea here. Yeah. It's very important for us to stop and think about this. Yeah. And it's not okay. So now that JJ and I have officially mansplained, yeah, <laughs> mansplained uh, the it. issue, we should actually get a female <laughs> voice on the air. Uh, you're going to love my conversation today with Marissa Orr, author of the book, Lean Out. Marissa, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk. First, I want to ask you this. Is wage discrepancy a real problem when it comes to gender? I don't think so, no. You don't think so? You don't think that we're paying women too little or that the argument is men and women are doing the same job, women get paid less? Yes, but that's not actually what's happening. Because What's happening? When you look at the data and you account for things like type of job, industry, hours worked, all that kind of stuff, when you take that into account, the wage gap shrinks from like 80% to 97 or 98%. So the main reason for that gap in the first place is personal choice. If you want to be a nurse, you're going to make less money than if you're running a hedge fund. That's just, you know, the economic. 
I always assumed the stats were the average female CEO versus the average male CEO of the exact same size company. But you're talking about just men and women in the workforce, period. And the jobs that they're taking are very different, which creates a wage gap that is actually really appropriate. Exactly. Is that what the data reveals? Yes, that's exactly right. So it's reflective of personal choice. And the 2%, so when you count for all of those other factors, then the 2% is really what could be gender bias or discrimination. They don't really know how much of that 2% is due to that. If I walk into a room of somebody else's company and there are five women on staff and five men, how much is me as a man going to assume that the five women are somehow administrative roles and the five men are somehow leader roles? I'm not confessing this all. It's actually not how I walk into a room anymore. But I remember a day when I was, you know, maybe a, even a teenager, which is not that long ago, that that is how I walked in a room. And it wasn't because I was a bad man and a powerful white man. I was just a kid who couldn't pay rent because the women were administrative roles and the men were leaders at that time in far greater numbers. It's changed now. But how many do you think there is a problem of men walking in the room and assuming this person, because it's a woman, does not have the authority that I need to deal with today? Yeah, I mean, that's a real thing, right? It's uh, gender stereotypes and bias and all that kind of stuff. But there's a couple things here. One is you can't remove people's biases in any real way, in a way that impacts enough people to actually solve anything. Those stereotypes exist. And as long as like we're aware of them and, you know, like you said, you're a good guy, you try and be aware of when you're doing that. Like that's really all we can do on that front. You really, in my opinion, and what I say in the book is we have to focus on what we can and can't control. And you can't control what everyone in the world thinks all the time. Right. And I think going back for a second to the, the wage gap piece, I just wanted to make this point that research shows that women compared to men have more life goals and more variety of life goals. Whereas men have fewer life goals, but they're more focused on money and position, a position of authority in their career. This is a sidebar conversation. Do you think that is because of cultural influence or because of DNA, you know, the way that we're wired? There's a couple different things that you said that we need to unpack. The first yeah. one is the question around the differences between men and women being cultural or something, you know, innate. Or biological, let's just say. Or biological, and specifically around like life goals and stuff. I do not think that the reason women have more life goals, less focused on money, for example, is a cultural thing. I don't think that at all. I think that that's just how we are. And one of the things that's really a message in the book is we've really confused being equal with being the same. That drives me crazy. My entire book is all about this. And now that we're going down this path, it brings me back to the point about the wage gap too, which is to close the wage gap, we require women to take different jobs, right? Because if one of the reasons that we make less in total income is because we're you know, picking professions like teaching and nursing, so that would mean in order to close the wage gap, if we all decided to go walk, work on Wall Street, right, mm -hmm. the wage gap would probably be closed. But at what cost? Right. right. Or is it hedge fund manager or a software engineer like they make more money, but are they more 
valuable to society than a nurse or a teacher. Mm. So your comment reminded me of that. We have some misplaced values. Yeah, exactly. And then the other thing going now, going back to the cultural versus biological, there are certain differences between men and women that are just so obvious, especially when you have kids, boys and girls. And we talk about these things all the time without a mention, like boys are more rough and tumble, you know, girls, you know, play together like more games and things like that. Like they're so obvious and they're so non-controversial, like stand-up comedy. I mean, particularly is all about the differences between men and women. And it's funny because it's true. We laugh at it. Right. But then when it comes to certain things, all of a sudden, when we want to point out a difference between men and women, right? It's like, you know, for example, with the life goals or the fact that women don't aspire to be CEO of a corporation to the same degree as men, then all of a sudden we get really skittish. Like, ooh, we can't say that because that's culture and stereotypes, blah, blah, blah. But anybody that has kids and is immersed in the neighborhood and goes and sees the kids at school. I mean, these differences are just too obvious to deny. Do you believe in gender nuance? Are you saying this is true for everybody or no, there is no, some no, nuance no, no. in the middle? So yeah, me too. You have to speak in generalities in order right, right. you know, to have a conversation that doesn't last 10 hours. You know, So I think that's another area where I think people get offended or they misunderstand the point, right? When I say men and women are different. I don't mean they should be different, right? The whole message of my book really is, you know, be yourself and screw everybody else and define <laughs> success on your own terms. So I'll start there, really. That's I mean, fantastic. but one of the things that I talk about in the book is the fact that because history is littered with examples of like women being enslaved by the female stereotype, like it's true 50, 60, 70 years ago, whatever. The female stereotype really formed a real world boundary on what women were allowed to do and how they were allowed to behave. But part of the problem today is that now, in order to sort of rebel against that, the prescription is, you know, behave outside the lines. And then everything associated with the female stereotype was like girly or like, oh, you shouldn't have your daughter play with princesses. You know, it's misguided because now where we used to punish women who violated or acted outside of female stereotype, now we're like punishing women for acting inside of it. The real goal of feminism is freedom, freedom to be who you are. And so whether that falls inside the lines of a female stereotype or without, you know, the goal is freedom. And I think that this actually parlays really well into your next question about women having the advantage in today's like information economy. This is also a huge part of the book, particularly the last section, because what I talk about is the fact, you know, my book's really about the corporate world. In the corporate world, you have these competitive higher, this, you know, power hierarchy. And essentially it's a zero sum game with the reward being more power over right. more people. And this was set up in the industrial age, you know, as the first time in history, you had these huge organizations of workers that you needed to organize, motivate, and reward. And, you know, the entire workforce was made up of men. And these structures were created by men from their worldview. I mean, research shows men perform better in competitive environments and were motivated by it, whereas women perform better and are more motivated by collaborative win-win environments. 
They weren't there when these structures were being set up. And since then, you know, that was also during a time where the economy, we were producing actual things, right? right? Like parts and factory physical labor and output was visible, right? You had a very prescribed job and your performance was pretty measurable and obvious. Now the entire economy has transformed into this knowledge work and the composition of our workforce has completely transformed. But these structures, these competitive zero-sum games in the corporate world, that is the only thing that has remained exactly the same. And why that's relevant or important to recognize when it comes to information and information economy is, well, first of all, you have an environment set up that caters only to the men in your organization. And again, these are generalizations. A lot of women like competition, a lot of men like collaboration. You know, sure. These are just generalizations so that we can have an effective conversation. So part of the issue now in an information economy is it's really hard to know who's doing a good job and sometimes who's doing any work at all. Because, you know, we create strategies, we service customers, we build marketing campaigns, you know, all of these things that don't have a visible component. Like it's really hard to grade people on performance. So what happens in these environments is we end up grading on visibility instead of performance. It's these visible behaviors that we use as proxies for competence, leadership, And, you know, I talk about Moneyball a lot in one chapter in the book, because the point being, even in sports, where things are very objective, right? You touch the plate or you didn't. You caught the ball or you didn't. And when there's disagreement, you have, or you have an umpire to settle disputes. In that kind of world, talent should be very obvious, like who's talented, who's not, who's doing a good job. But with Moneyball, we saw that even in that very objective world, even with people like talent scouts who their entire lifelong job was to know who's talented, even then as people, as human beings were really bad at judging talent and performance and competence. And that is multiplied times a million in the corporate world where usually people don't even agree on what a win looks like. So how do you even know who's doing a good job? And what Michael Lewis wrote in his follow-up book, The Undoing Project, was that the reason that the scouts and managers, I screw up the sports terminology, so forgive me, but the reason that they sort of misjudged it was because of these visible factors. So, you know, the shiny thing like runs were more valued than walks, even though they're points, right? Right. Fat or misshapen players were not calibrated according to their talent because, you know, they were using physical fitness as a proxy for talent. So like our brains default to these visible behaviors. Now in the corporate world, what that means is it's behaviors like people that are most willing to self-promote, talk about themselves. They want to work on the most highly visible projects, self-aggrandizement, aggression, putting, you know, your needs ahead of others. Like these are the proxies that we use and they correlate more highly with men and less visible behaviors like listening. That's a, by nature, not a visible thing because you're be quiet. You're listening. 
empathy is such an important dimension to leadership. You don't see it. And all of these really important characteristics and behaviors for an information economy, we have no way to detect them in a corporate hierarchy. They're like invisible. So yes, women might have that natural advantage, but it doesn't get them promoted. I'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Marissa Orr in just a moment. JJ, we got a message from one of our StoryBrand guides. Yes. A rooftop equipment company just came through the StoryBrand Live yes. Workshop. These are the results they've seen <laughs> since implementing their new message. In just like a couple months. Yeah, just a couple months. 33.9% increase in revenue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is a rooftop equipment company. Yes. And all they did was change the words on their website and yep. create a sales funnel that we teach them to create. Yep. But I can't even imagine they implemented the whole sales it funnel that quickly. It can't be quickly. that fast. No. <laughs> it's got to be just basically words on their website. 5.06% conversion rate. It's an increase of almost 200%. 5% of the people going to their website are buying something. Yes. That's insane. Insane. 10% increase in the number of pages per session. And then 22% increase in the average session duration. People are sticking around longer. Sticking around longer. Buying more. Looking at more pages. And it's turning into conversion dollars. conversion rate. And they came in April. Sometimes I feel like we're the doctor's who prescribe like water. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're just, you drink more water. If you drink more water, you know, Somebody comes in and they haven't had yeah. a glass of water in 30 years. Like, you know, you should, you should just drink water, drink water and drink less coffee. When you come to the StoryBrand workshop, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Although you do have to spend some mental energy to figure it out. Basically, what we're saying is you are confusing your customers mm-hmm. and they don't understand what you have to offer. Yeah. And you're being cute and clever and they don't get it. Yeah. And so people say to us, well, what if we say this? We'll say, no, you're still doing it. Yeah. What's really funny is they'll say something cute or clever that they want to put on their website. And I say, I don't understand what that means. What does that mean? And they say, well, you know, we sell the best rooftop equipment in town. And I'll go, just say that. Just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Say that. I know what that means, right? And so sometimes it just takes getting into a room for 48 hours and figuring out where you are confusing people and rewriting the text so that people actually engage. And having an outside set of eyes look at our the yeah. coaches come in and they look at it. We look at it. Yeah. And we go, yep, you're on or nope, this is still too cute, too clever. Just switch it up. Yeah. I laugh when you say those things because it makes me giddy. Like yeah. it literally <laughs> makes me giddy to see that somebody came and it's already changing the way they're doing everything. And we get these stories every single day. We have a yep. Slack channel that's just, it's called uh, Social Proof. Yeah. And we just get these stories every single day. If you need to clarify your message, it's likely the thing holding you back. If you have a great product, you have great people selling that product. And if you're selling a good number of that product, but it seems to be word of mouth and it's not really based on your marketing, it's because your marketing isn't working. And you need to clarify your message and then create a marketing plan that works. Both of those, we will check off those boxes in the StoryBrand Marketing Workshop that is coming up here at the end of September. You want to go to storybrand.com and register today. Here's what's going to happen. You'll fly in possibly on a Sunday. Sunday night, there's a dessert at the Bell Tower in downtown Nashville. You'll meet all the 200 other people who are going to be there. Really wonderful people from all over the country in the same shoes as you trying to build their company. How often do you get in the room with 200 people who are trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? That alone is worth the price of admission. Monday morning, 9 a.m., I'm going to be on stage. and I'm going to take you through the StoryBrand framework. I know you've read the book, but you've never heard the framework like this. And then we are going to spend the next day and a half only talking about your message, seven aspects of it. You're going to leave with seven 
statements, seven components of messaging that you can repeat over and over and over. And every time you do it, it is like a magic spell. It's the words you say to get business. Repeat them exactly as you wrote them at the workshop. Then we're going to, the second half of the day, Tuesday, we actually teach you to put those words into what's called a one-liner, a landing page, a lead generating PDF, and an email campaign. That's a sales funnel. And that sales funnel is going to make you money while you sleep. It's an automated sales funnel that builds relationships with people even while you're doing nothing. That way, when they come through your retail door, they call you or they respond to your sales rep, they're already on the third and fourth date. You already have a relationship with them and they trust you and it changes the entire conversation. It makes closing sales much easier. You can experience the kind of increases that this rooftop equipment company experienced and so many of our other clients. Register at storybrand.com right now and attend a workshop. Again, right here at the end of September. It starts September 22nd, I believe. It's that Sunday. September 22nd, come to Nashville with 200 other business leaders. We cannot wait to see you. I will shake your hand personally. I'll sign a copy of your book. Come register today at storybrand.com. One of the takeaways is first we got to shift the metrics that we're using to decide who's talented and who's not, who's actually. But there are hidden factors, perhaps, in our organizations that are causing us to win, and we're attributing those to men, the wins to men more often than to women. Would that be something that you would say is a problem? There's a couple problems. The first one, yes, because we lack any sort of objective way to tell who's right. doing the job, we default to proxies of behavior that skew male. And so that's one problem. Another problem is there's only one type of reward at work, which is after you pass a certain salary, each raise gets less rewarding. Like what motivates people to climb higher and higher to the top of the ladder? Right. Power. And this is a whole other ball of wax. But basically, at Google, we had this offsite where we did these personality surveys, right? When we got to the conference room, we each like got, you know, a book of our, a map of our personality and each person also was assigned a color to represent one of the four major personality types. So I was a green and it meant that I had a strong drive to help people. I strive for harmony. I prioritize my relationships. And in the book, I joked that like, basically it means I was a hippie. And to underscore the point, they didn't just call it green. They called it earth green. And in the corporate world, this could like feels a bit akin to like being a sex offender, being like the hippie in a room of corporate sales managers. And the opposite of green was fiery red. And reds are competitive. They strive for power and control. And they prioritize results over relationships like a green, right? And we get into groups by color and I just, I asked the HR woman, what are the colors of our, like our executive team? And she did not want to answer this question clearly, which yeah. only fueled everyone's curiosity. Sure. And it turns out like nine out of 10 were. Red. Right. High D on the disc test. Yeah, exactly. And I tell this story a lot when I present at conferences or at companies and stuff. And I always pause to see what the audience will guess. Every time a chorus of voices screams out red, there's never anyone that right. ever says green. Like these are things that are very obvious to us, right? And, you know, what kind of hippie wants to be CEO? But it's it solidified. So at, at Google, I 
had the highest performance scores on my team that half of the year. But I, they had a rule that in order to get past the level of where I was, I needed to start managing a team. I did not want to manage people. I'm very creative. I like to dig into the work. I love being a coach and a mentor, but I detested any sort of formal management responsibilities. Right. It was not rewarding to me. They compromised my relationships. And I would have made less impact on the organization. After the colors offsite, I went to my man because I had a whole new lens on this. I was like, oh, you know, I'm just motivated by different things. You know, I strive for harmony, a win-win. This is all like a zero sum game for positions of authority, which I don't want. And when I explained this to her, I thought she'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay, you'll get an exemption from the policy because of course we want to keep you motivated and happy. But that was like the very naive part of me. I thought that was very straightforward, but it turns out they'd heard this argument before and nobody was ever exempted from the policy. And what I realized over time was what I saw as a difference in personality, they saw as weakness and they saw wow. as lack of ambition. Yeah. That's the point. It's like, if you're a green like me and there's elements of a green that overlap with, you know, index toward a higher on the side of women, what is left to motivate? I wanted to work on bigger and bigger problems. I don't want to work, manage a bigger team, but because I was sort of labeled as having a lack of ambition because I didn't want to manage, there was nothing rewarding for me there. And I, so many women I talk to tell me how happy they are that I'm saying this because this is how they always felt, but they didn't know how to put it into words. And so that's one of my big problems with all this rhetoric about the gender gap. You know, it's like one of the things in Lean In is a theory why there's a gap in ambition toward leadership. There's really no gap in ambition toward leadership. There's gap in ambition toward being a CEO, hmm. right? There's a lot of ways to be a leader. Like I use the example, Martin Luther King was a leader, but his followers didn't work for him. He didn't, right. he didn't have right. power over them. He didn't have power over their livelihood that's a type of leader and a CEO is a type of leader, but CEO don't have followers that choose, you know, to follow him. They have to, the power structure requires it. So I think it's a redefinition of ambition, a redefinition of power. Can I summarize your argument? You tell me whether I'm onto it. Women don't need to change so much. Our workplaces and the way we measure success and how we achieve those successes need to change to be more inclusive and understanding of women. And, and let me just add this, because I think it's really important. For the sake of the bottom line, this isn't charity. Yeah. It's literally for the sake of the bottom line. If, in other words, if you're smart, you'll think through this and you'll change some systems so that women can thrive, so that you can make more money. So many things to say. It's not even about women. It's really about the way corporations are structured hmm. that cater to a small subset of personality traits that happen to overlap more or index toward men. That's really the issue. And in the book, I go into detail a lot about what you're saying is how do the structures need to change and how do we do that? And part of the reason this is so important, and again, you're right, it is not charity at all, is in a knowledge economy. Well, let's go back to like the manufacturing era for a second, yeah. because like, let's take Ford, right? The assembly line, like he was obsessed with efficient supply and managing production, right? Right. Nobody would have to convince him to do that, right? That's a common sense thing. And 
Henry Ford owned the supply and it was physical and, you know, he could store it in a warehouse. I'm reducing this, but, you know, you get my point. Sure, sure. Well, today in a knowledge economy, what is the supply? Like all those workers at Google, like they're not handling physical parts. Google hires them for their brain power. Hmm. The brain power is the supply and the companies no longer own that. You own it, your brain. And what happens when you're unhappy at work or you feel demotivated or unengaged or pissed off because your manager is an asshole? Like, what do you do? You pull back. You stop trying. That's an automatic reduction in supply. That's right. And yeah. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. The reason that, you know, CEOs might say, oh, yeah, employee engagement is on our agenda. It's, a, it's an issue, right? But they say that. But does anyone really do anything about it? Well, nobody knows what to do about it. It's all snake oil from that point on. To finish up that point, not focusing on employee engagement and well-being, of which, you know, women being demotivated is a huge part. It's like akin to Henry Ford waking up every morning and deciding to set fire to 80% of his factories. Like, yeah. That's such a good analogy. Yeah, like like today, let's only, you know, use 20% of what we got. It's insane. So part of the reason employee engagement is so low and therefore supply is so inefficient is because of the power dynamic. A lot of people feel really powerless at work because your manager essentially has almost total and absolute power over you, your career, and in a lot of cases, your self-worth. Yeah. And... It's demeaning and demoralizing to a lot of people. And not only that, like I had a manager once who was so linear and black and white, and I am the opposite. I'm super creative and I had to work in the way she prescribed. And it was like painful for me. Yeah, I worked not as hard at all. And I also, the work I did do was way less impactful but you have no recourse in that situation. So one of the things I talk about in the book is checks and balances on power to make people feel like they work in a system that where their best interests could be served. Another example, so like Google gets all this credit a lot for having these enlightened ways of doing that in a more like progressive ethos. So one of the things that they employ is called an upward feedback survey. It's talked a lot about in books written by like Google executives. Upward feedback survey is like twice a year. The teams, if you have three or more people reporting to you, fill out this extensive survey anonymously about your manager. And then the manager is required to share the aggregate results with the team. Hmm. And the thought is, and it's certainly a great step in the right direction. I mean, most companies wouldn't do something like this. I applaud them for that. Yeah, it feels like it's exposing some things or it's a system designed to expose some things that might otherwise be hidden. But here's the problem with it. So the idea behind it is that the sense of like public shaming or something Hmm. will motivate a manager to act differently. But the problem is the results, some managers didn't share them, even though they were required and they weren't sort of punished for it unless people complained loudly enough. Another thing is they were meaningless in so far as like, they were horrible, horrible, like psychopathic managers that got horrible, horrible scores and it didn't affect their ability to get promoted. So you could be terrible on the upward feedback survey but then it didn't feed into your performance score. So then all of a sudden you have these people scoring very low going on to manage bigger and bigger teams. And then the other thing was 
Google encourages a lot of lateral moves. I switched roles like five or six times in my 13 years there. And when you do that, a hiring manager on a new team can access all your performance scores, which makes sense, right? They want to have a sense of how you've performed. Right. But you are never allowed to look at their upward feedback survey results. So why are they allowed to see my performance as a great input on whether to hire me, but I can't see your performance as a manager to make the decision about whether I want to work for you? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it went one step, but it didn't go far enough. And these are the kind of systemic changes that could really help people be engaged. And, you know, this is just one example. It gets a little bit away from from women, but the solution really, I mean, people are diverse by their very nature, right? Everybody's different. Our thumbprints, like nobody is two of the same. That's the same way we are as people and our personalities. The reason that diversity is not reflected at the top of a corporate structure is because it only rewards a very narrow subset of traits. So the way you solve diversity is creating environments where people can be themselves. Like it's very simple. I mean, it's simple in concepts, not easy to do. This is important, Marissa, you know, not just for gender inequality. I think this is important for America's global competition in the economy, the global economy to remain competitive we're just going to have to think about a different way of doing business that involves all of our intellectual talent, male and female. And for that matter, all the races that are involved in this too, because it's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Race is a totally separate, and I make that distinction in the beginning, but you're right. It matters on so many levels and just from a, a business standpoint, of course, but also just like as a humanity, you have all these people yeah, to do the right thing, sitting in these cubicles, miserable. Well, listen, Marissa, this is a fascinating conversation. I think we could go for another couple hours. There's a lot that you can do about this in your workplace. Marissa's book is called Lean Out. I think it's a response to Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Is that fair to say? Yes. (laughs) If not, unfortunate title, but I think you nailed it. The book is called Lean Out. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Or you can follow Marissa on Twitter. It's at Marissa with one R, Beth Orr, O-R-R and uh, glean her wisdom there. Marissa, thank you so much for this insightful conversation. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. I love how much she calls us to nuance because I think it's a problem. Binary thinking is such a problem in our culture. And in my opinion, I blame the media. I really do because the media is not interested in a nuanced conversation. Mike McCarg, I don't know if you said on the podcast, but we talked in a private conversation Science Mike, yeah. he talked about um, how you can become addicted to the feeling of outrage. Yeah. And CNN, MSNBC, and yeah. Fox News sell you outrage. Yeah. So they're looking for something to make you feel outrage, and a nuanced conversation doesn't do that. Yep. So they're not going to put it on the news. If and it's a nuanced new, conversation to, yeah. takes time. Yeah. And that in the fast-paced media world— And it's also contextual. World, you, yeah. can't, you can't blanket a prescription. Yeah. You have to actually sit and go, okay, sit down, individual, one-on-one, and let's figure you out. Yeah. Marissa even said in the interview, it's very hard to have a conversation if you have to nuance everything. Yeah. But there's not a, a one-size-fits-all solution for this. Yeah. What was interesting when I was talking to Marissa, I'm a high D on the disk test. Enneagram 3, I would be red. I mean, if I were at Google, I'd probably be off the charts red. Yeah. What's interesting about our company, StoryBrand and Business Made Simple, I am surrounded by high greens. Uh-huh. You're, green, you're a high green. <laughs> yes. 
Tim's a high green. Yes. April's a high green. Oh, April might have a lot of red, though. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And the Kula's three pe- high red, don't you Kula's think? High, Kula's high red, yeah. But yeah. the three people you just mentioned, me, Tim, and April, are all also twos on the Enneagram. Yeah, so. twos tend to be high green. <laughs> Kyle Reed's high green. Yeah. Do you think Kyle Willis is? He's our sales director. No. He's you think red. he's high red? He's red. Jake's red. Yeah, Jake's Matt's red. The whole sales team's red. Yeah, sales team's red. Yeah, red. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's the Red Sea <laughs> down in the basement. What's interesting is we've created a team, and we really do lead as a team. And I, I probably yeah. provide vision, and then you guys kind of go, you adjust that vision, and then you execute based on what we needs to get done. We ignore that vision. You ignore and, that and vision. <laughs> Tim used to say, if he mentions it three times, we have to do it. <laughs> but there's checks and balances in our system. Yeah. And so people don't get railroaded. Yep. And one of the ways that I was trying to figure out as she was talking even was, how is this making us money? Because I would tend to have the bias that she, you know, is lambasting against. I would be biased. Like, well, if you're aggressive and you make things happen and you move forward, you're clearly the leader we want. And then I realized, okay, Tim is, it's not that he's not aggressive. He's extremely um, competitive. Yeah. But probably four of our principal staff members who are making us tons of money, we got, even in a national search, as friends or acquaintances of Tim Schur. Yeah. And so because he sits down and has profitless relationships and long conversations yeah. with people, he's making connections with people who are incredibly valuable to us. Yeah. And I'm not, right? I mean, I'm making great relationships and those kinds of things, but I tend to just want to help people win, yeah. and he wants to connect. And that the combination between what he's doing, what you're doing, what I'm doing, what April's doing, and Kula to some degree, even though she's high red like me, we create this incredible team. I really want to be careful not to create a class system mm-hmm. where there's the driven class and then the culture class. Yeah. Right? I think they need to be seen as equals, male or female. Well, doesn't and I matter. think we've created that here a lot. Because in the I same so. way that like I would say Tim and April and I are also very competitive, right? I mean, in the sense of that, like, we do it for the team versus the individual competitiveness. You're not pounding your chest. No, but it's like, we're going to (laughs) win. You know, and we go hard. And like, even on a personal level for me, like, I make sure that I'm bringing value to the company at every level I'm involved Everything has to be economically sustainable. And so I'm looking at the numbers too, you know, as well. But there is a nuance there with like, it is checks and balance because there are times where people who I would say are red are a little bit more like, no, we need to go a little faster and we need to go a little stronger. And the people who are the green might say, yes, but we also need to be careful about how this impacts everybody. And so I actually love it. I love the way that we work together I I feel like the challenge as a leader for me is to take some of the high green people again, as Marissa has defined them, or as Google defines them Mm -hmm. in their system, and coach them to help make the company more money. And it's not because I love money. That's not the point. The point is, if if they, with their gifts and talents, if they can make the company more money, they will make more money. Yeah. They will have more job security. We will be able to afford a better culture. We pay for everybody's therapy here. We pay for counseling retreats. We yeah. pay. For, we care about mental health here. We only do that because we make money. Yeah. And so if we want to keep this, everything has to be economically sustainable. If there's a takeaway from this, most people listening are probably high D like me. And to turn around and say, one, are you looking down upon people who are more collaborative yeah. and less combative. And if so, I think it's a mistake. Yeah. And I think it's not just a character mistake or a problem we need to actually, you know, be convicted about. I think it's an economic mistake. Yeah. I huge. think it's a huge economic yep. mistake. I think you're missing out on some money. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to change that. And what a terrific conversation. Yeah. She's very, very thoughtful. 
Yeah. Marissa Orr, thanks for coming on. We'd love to have you back. And my stomach feels a little bit better now. A little bit better? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can find Andrew's music on Spotify or Apple Music. Thanks for listening to the Building a Story Brand, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. 